Innovate UK KTN. Connecting for positive change. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Innovate UK KTN Geo for Earth podcast. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Dallas Campbell. I'm a science and technology television presenter. And I'm Susie Imber. I'm a space physicist and we'll be with you throughout this series chatting to some of the finest minds, all things related to climate change. And today's finest minds, we have Luca Bodello, who is the geospatial lead at Innovate UK KTN and also the producer of this podcast series. So there you go. <laughs> Welcome to Luca. We've got to be on our best behaviour today. Too. Indeed. And we also have Jeff Kendall, founder and CEO of Future Fit. And in this episode, we'll be talking about what role innovation plays in the fight against climate change. So Luca, why don't you introduce yourself uh, to start off with and let everyone know who you are and what you're up to. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Susie. Uh, well, I'm Luca Budello and I am the Knowledge Transfer Manager for Geospatial at, uh, at the Innovate UK KTN. Um, my main role is to support the community of uh, geospatial uh, stakeholders, that is, uh, the entrepreneurs, the funders, uh, the business owners, the uh, practitioners that use uh, location data uh, in their uh, uh, professional life. And I help uh, this community to connect uh, across sectors uh, on, uh, you know, with uh, businesses in, uh, in transport, uh, in, um, in finance, in healthcare, in, in energy, to help build uh, a new product, new services, to bring innovation that is cross-sector and is collaborative. And I do this in a number of ways. I, I help uh, with uh, uh, raising funds, uh, raising finance, uh, but also organizing events. And uh, one thing that I, I've organized back in November was the Space and Geospatial Virtual Pavilion for COP26. Uh, 25 events, 250 speakers over 11 days, and where we uh, had fantastic discussion around the role of collaboration, system thinking, innovation to tackle the climate change challenge. And uh, this podcast is uh, part of the post-event activities uh, together with the publication that we launched just a few weeks ago. And uh, yeah, this is me for now. Ah, oh, Luca, Dallas and I remember that pavilion well. That was an incredible piece of work. Yeah, I was going to say, that, that sounds really familiar, that pavilion. Yeah. <laughs> so, Luca, though, I mean, your, your work is pretty broad. Can you tell us a bit about how you got into this sort of line of work, how you got to where you are today? Um, absolutely. Um, well, I, I didn't have a, a really straightforward uh, career pattern. Uh, I didn't start working on geospatial or data when I was 20. Uh, and then, you know, for the past 10, 30 years, building a career around in, on this sector, I had more of a portfolio career. And I, I think that is actually my strength. I started as an officer in the Italian army. I, I was a, a scuba diving instructor for a few years. I, I built three businesses on the past 20 years. And you were in a rock and roll band. I and I was in a rock and roll band in <laughs> my, my early teens year. And, um, you know, and one of my business was a, a social enterprise uh, where I helped the Cambodian government to set up a marine protected area in Cambodia. I went back to university when I was 36 doing marine biology and then I became an ecologist using earth observation data to quantify deforestation, uh, biodiversity loss, ecosystem services. And I defined myself as an ecologist more than anything else. And I think this is my strength. I'm not a specialist on 
anything. I'm a, I, I call myself a deep generalist. I know I enough, like that. I like enough that. of a lot of yeah. different things and I connect dots. So that's, Good. that's what I do. I think KTN values this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, um, skills. So someone that is more of a connector, understand uh, problems, uh, transform and opportunities, sectors and uh, put them together. So here I am. I work now with KTN uh, supporting the geospatial community to continue to innovate. That is such a fantastic story. I love hearing this background. You know, Luca, I've known you for a while now. I did not know you were a scuba diving instructor. You know, I didn't know you were in the army. And you're in the really army. Interesting. I don't, in fact, I don't know anyone in this business or in this kind of line of work who had a kind of straightforward, is there such a thing as a straightforward career path in, in this kind of world? Let's, let's ask, let's ask Jeff, Jeff Kendall from FutureFit. First of all, let's talk about your rock and roll credentials. Were you, are... were you in a band? Were you in the art? What's the deal? My rock and roll credentials don't go beyond singing into a hairbrush in the shower. That's okay. Um, <laughs> but I was really good at that. Um, but no, I, I don't know how to follow Luca's eclectic background there. Um, Just make it up. So, we won't, we won't, nobody will check. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I was a rocket scientist in my late teens. Um, no, seriously. I actually, I did start on an interesting path back before it was sexy. I did a PhD in artificial intelligence. So this was back in the wow. early nineties when what did, what did AI think, look like? In, what did that look like in the nineties? AI? It was, it was very different. It was, Speaking spell. um, Kind of, yeah. It was it was code something. See if it's see if you think it's going to actually do anything meaningful, and then leave it running overnight, and come back and look at the results the next morning, right? And I was looking at um, artificial vision, so how you get robots to see and so on. And to think that you know you used to run these simulations overnight, and now a Tesla will do that same work ninety times a second. Um, so yeah, it's it's moved on a little bit since then. Let's say. Um, but I spent 20 years in the software world um, and then learned about the, uh, the challenges we've got with climate change. And we can get into that if you want to um, and switch careers and uh, became a sustainability consultant for four years, working with some big companies. But got quite disillusioned with that in the um, most big companies at the time. So we're talking around 2012, 2013, um, thought that leadership meant being in the lead. Right. If you're slightly better than your peers, you're doing enough and you can get on with business as usual. And what I've realized in, in looking at um, a lot of the work that's been done out there by national system scientists around planetary boundaries and so forth, if, if you know about that stuff, um, if you start looking at the earth as a system that supports the needs of society and the economy can only thrive if society thrives and that can only happen if we're protecting the, uh, the planet that we rely on, then you start realizing actually just being less bad than everyone else is not enough. So started looking at how do you measure progress, not from the status quo, which is bad, but towards the future we want, right? And, and that's why I left to found Future Fit Foundation, which is a, a UK-based charity, uh, to translate all of that good systems thinking into a form that um, the average CEO can understand and apply within their organizations. And that, that's something I've been working on now for about eight years. Uh, it's called the Future Fit Business Benchmark, and it's completely free for anyone to download and use. Okay, so, so you, you, you advise companies. So companies come to you and, and, and the companies say, oh, well, how can we be better? How can we change the way we do things? And, and then you, you advise, is that fair? Well, so, so I would say consultancies tend to advise 
Um, what we've done is we've tried to replicate the successes of the software world. So in the software world, it used to be that everyone would create their own software, um, would try and convince people it was the best, and would go out and try and compete and sell that thing. And and back in the day, when when I was younger, and I'm, um, um, you know, showing my age here, but there were there were around twelve different word processing packages running on Microsoft Windows back in the nineties and the early two thousands. And none of them talked to each other. None of them opened the same files. It it was atrocious, right? Um, and then along came open standards and open source as a way to get things interoperating. And people started building stuff in the back bedrooms and giving it away for free. And other people could innovate on top of that and so forth. So with my background in the software world, what I realized is if we want to see change at speed and scale around sustainability, we need to open source it. We need to come up with this guidance and these tools, give them away, enable other people to be successful from applying that. And that includes consultants. So there's around 80 consultants around the world that apply our approach in helping companies. So we, we kind of collate and curate these resources into a, a usable form and then let other people go off and, and build businesses around it. Got it. Right. Okay. Well, we're gonna, we've got lots of sort of complex terms and complex things we're going to be talking about today. I'm gonna, I want to really try and de-jargonize this. I'm, I'm going to be the, the metric, if I can understand it. Hopefully the audience can understand it. I mean, words like systems thinking and, and, and things that you guys talk about. We're going to come to that. But I suppose, Susie, we've got like a pretty straightforward question, which, which is how does innovation underpin a sustainable future? Should we start there, do you think? I think maybe we should start out by by asking what is innovation, actually? What do you mean when you talk about innovation? I mean, Luca, maybe you could have a first go at this one. Uh, sure. Um, well, innovation is um, can take many different forms. If you, if you look at the dictionary, uh, when you look at the word innovation, is a, a process uh, that builds something new. And the new things could be a product, a service. It could be a new business model. It could be a new idea. And that is innovation. And uh, uh, innovation could work on, on, on social uh, kind of issues. So it could be social innovation, business innovation, policy innovation, and technology innovation. Uh, now, in my work, I tend to, uh, well, span across all of them, but possibly technology innovation is probably the, uh, the, the, the area where I work most. And uh, in, this, in, in, in this space, uh, innovation, let's say, has two main uh, elements. One could be pushed by technology, which is usually the process of R&D from a university or R&D from a company where you build a completely new technology and there is no product, so the market does not ask for it. Otherwise, or it can be a market uh, pulled by the market. So there is a, a market research type of activity where you find out where there is a gap and use technology to build a new product that fit that market. Most often, innovation plays uh, with both processes acting together. You build a new technology, you explore uh, what the market wants, and, and then you build a new product and uh, um, and this is what is happening uh, in in space and geospatial which is there is a prof proliferation of data that there is a, a proliferation of opportunities uh, because there has been a congruence of a lot of different technology uh, coming together artificial intelligence visualization uh, like augmented reality virtual reality uh, miniaturization of sensors which has allowed us to put more satellite in space collecting more data 
And then you have, you know, artificial intelligence that allow us to process data in a, in a way that is more efficient and give us more intelligence and cloud computing that allows to bring a new business model. Um, you know, sub subscription services would not be possible without uh, cloud computing, processing data in the cloud and delivering at a global scale. So innovation takes a lot of different form. Most often is incremental. So you have a you know, little bit of innovation moving forward to, to do a better product or services. That's really clear. Thank you, Lika. And so one for you, Jeff, what kind of innovation does FutureFit promote? Well, I think as, as uh, Luca said at the end there, most innovation is quite incremental. And what we're looking for is really transformational innovation. Um, if you think about it, we've got a lot of established industries uh, populated by established companies, right? And they, they have reached that point of becoming established companies by getting really, really good at doing one thing or a handful of things, right? You know, Apple build a better iPhone every year, right? Nestle find better ways or cheaper ways to ship food to uh, supermarkets, whatever it might be, okay? And it's really about efficiency. And what we need now, if we're to transform the economy in pursuit of a just and regenerative future that benefits everyone, what we need is not so much efficiency as experimentation. And that doesn't come naturally to large companies. Now, we see small companies, startups, social enterprises, and so on, coming up with completely new ways of doing things. And so the kind of innovation we're looking for is finding better ways to meet existing needs, right? Now, of course, better is a, you know, what does that mean, right? And we can talk about unpacking that, but that's what I would say, yeah. May, may I add something here? Um, at kind of the role of innovation in across this is that innovation does not work in a, in a vacuum, uh, is not in isolation. Innovation serve a purpose, and usually that purpose is the economic framework we operate. Now, I'm not an economist. Don't ask any question about the economic uh, economic framework or theories. But our economic framework is built around uh, neoclassical theory, which main tenet is capital accumulation, is generating profit. Therefore, innovation served that purpose. There was an article from uh, Milton Friedman back in the 60s. Uh, Milton Friedman was a, a treasury of the uh, United States, which said uh, something along the line that a business sole purpose is to generate value for its shareholders. And any business that do something different would be at a competitive disadvantage. And uh, to me and to many in, in this century, this statement sounds anachronistic. However, it's still the way we do business today. So what we need to do is to change the way we, uh, well, we do business. Uh, and in this, in this sense, uh, capital allocation play a big role. If we invest in innovation in short-term time horizons, like two years, three years, we can now have that transformational change that is required to tackle the challenges that we face. If a, a venture capital want to exit after five years, that is not possible. We need uh, capital allocation for innovation that is 10 years, 20 years time horizon so that we can build that, that transformational change that Jeff was just mentioning. That's really interesting, that transformational change. I, I, I'm interested, you, you know, you talked about in innovation being incremental. In the other kind of important thing I think about innovation is that 
you have to have sort of trial and error. Trial and error has to kind of be built into the system. Otherwise, otherwise you can't innovate, which is traditionally why governments and big companies have always struggled to innovate and smaller, more nimble companies do. Are you seeing, Jeff, in your work, are you seeing that becoming more an acceptable idea? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a there's this disparity or disconnect there um, that the big incumbent businesses really struggle with this kind of experimentation, right? They've, they've got good at doing the same thing slightly better each year and no one gets fired for slightly improving on what was done last year, right? <laughs> yeah. particularly, particularly because our definitely, you know, I, I mentioned, I think of innovation as finding better ways to, to meet existing needs. Well, if your definition of better is more profitable, then of course you're going to focus on efficiency, right? Efficiency of resources, not needing so many people, etc. But what we mean by better now is actually protecting the natural systems we all depend upon, clean off air, fertile soil, and so forth, yeah. and, and meeting the needs of people around the world to eradicate poverty. And if that's your definition of better, you need to really experiment beyond the kinds of things that worked in the past. Do we need a consensus on what better means then? I don't. Maybe you could. We should all unpack what we mean by better. So yeah, I, I mean I can have a crack because we. That's the start of our work at FutureFit. We say that um, what we want to see is a economy that is environmentally restorative, socially just, and economically inclusive. Right. That's the kind of economy we want, where no one is left behind where everything we do to the world makes it better and more able to meet our needs and where everyone gets the same opportunities. That definition of better is great, but how do you help these larger companies that have worked in a different mindset that are very profit-orientated to shift their mindset towards thinking about things in a different way that may be less profitable? I mean, that, that must be your challenge, presumably, is, is incentivizing or helping people to understand the importance of this shift in mindset. You, it's, it's really interesting. People understand the need for it, right? You can get a CEO, you know, to pull them to one side, give them a beer, talk about this stuff, and they say, yeah, I get it. But then they say, but I'm operating within a system that values dollars above all else, right? So what do I do about that? And, that, and that's why I think you get this disconnect. We said that the big companies don't like it or, or find it hard to experiment. The smaller startups... That's all they're doing, and that's where it's really exciting. In a way, Susie's point's bang on. It's like, in a way, the hardest thing I, I can imagine is is getting past human psychology and the way people think. Luca, you know, tr- trying to, you know, we're so used to living in a particular way, and the human brain, we are, we do get quite resistant to change, especially when it's about changing complete, you know, big things like, you know, values, value systems. Do you, do you, Luca? For you, do you, do you? Are you sort of butting up against that quite a lot? That resistance to change. Not as much. I in the work I do, I always see uh, companies, organization that wants to do something new or experiment in a different way. Um, not always they are uh, uh, in the uh, they are put in the in the condition to do so because they might not have uh, the funding to actually uh, implement new new 
way of, of doing business. But when uh, those uh, new opportunity happens, uh, what I see play a big role uh, is collaboration, uh, is uh, the uh, ability of uh, uh, different organizations with different expertise to come together and uh, break down those barriers. Um, and uh, and in fact, this is not a technology problem. So doing innovation is often not a technology problem. Finding new solution is not a technology problem per se. We have many issues that need to be resolved, uh, but uh, technology can be can be uh, developed. It is a uh, more of a frame of mind. And uh, there is an, an example, a case studies, I think, that uh, can can help with this. Is uh, the National Underground Asset Register. Uh, now, this is it's called newer. This is a geospatial commission, so a UK-based project done by the geospatial commission, led by the geospatial commission in collaboration with. Uh, a lot of different uh, utility providers from energy company to water company. The aim is to map out underground uh, cables and pipes. Uh, and there is a, a, a reason why they want to do that. They want to do that because they, um, they want to uh, reduce the, the utility strikes. They want to create a more pro productive they want to reduce congestion and therefore pollution and etc. But the other things that is very important for this project is to see how all these companies which compete on a daily basis, they open up their data silos, they put all that data together because they developed a, a, a single vision in which and a number of, uh, of value on which they can collaborate, for which they can build something together and still be competitive, but collaborate. And this is what we need to see to see more often. And, uh, and this is what I see happening, I mean, nowadays. It's not just about competition. It is sometimes we compete, sometimes we need to collaborate to resolve problems and challenges. I think Luke is spot on there. And, and this, this um, you know, uh, disconnect between the large incumbent businesses that have got good at doing really one thing and and the startups that really do can spin on a dime right and 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 come up with complete new ways of doing things i think collaboration between those types of organizations is what's really strong because if you can get the big companies to realize that business as usual is not taking us in the right direction they can then find and invest in those startups and really help them to scale up and um, so we need both talking about collaboration i guess a, a question really as well is is how how we need to think about a change in culture when we think about about innovation. So Jeff, maybe you have some insights in, into the sort of idea of culture and, and how cultural change can help us with innovation. Yeah, I, th I think the biggest thing that we see within companies is this, this fear of failure, that failure is not encouraged within large companies, right? That, and, and this leads to this kind of paralysis where you think, well, I've got this crazy idea, but actually it's sticking my neck out to go there. Right. Back in the back in, you know, many, many years ago, when um, when we lived in a world um, where um, the personal computer was just becoming dominant and there was the IBM PC. Right. And then there were lots of what they call clone PCs and there were lots of other compacts, Hewlett Packard, Compaq, all these guys. Right. And they came out with clones and IBM's machines cost something like three times everyone else's and they were virtually identical. Right. But they used to clean up in terms of market share. And the old adage was no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Right? 
It's like if you if your computers go wrong and they're IBM, well then you did everything you could. If they go wrong and you you did it because you paid for something that's half the price, well then more the for you. And I think we see that today with innovation. A lot of times people will actually there's not a culture that encourages them to come forward with harebrained schemes. And and that's what we need to enable. There is a cult. I mean, I see it everywhere. We all see it. This sort of culture of fear, everyone's fear of reputational damage or making a mistake mm. or being held accountable for things. And you're absolutely right. If you want to innovate and really change things, you actually have to take risks. And we seem to be increasingly risk averse. Or maybe that's because I'm just an old grumpy man. I don't know. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. And that's why we see startups doing a lot of the really interesting stuff because, you know, that they have got less to lose, right? They yes. haven't got shareholders who are going to, yeah. you know, grumble the minute profits stall or whatever. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I suppose just picking up on, on Luca's point about collaboration, I always think, again, one of the essentials of innovation is that innovation is essentially a team sport and is something that happens between brains rather than just sort of in, in individual brains. The idea of the lone inventor doesn't really apply when it comes to innovation. How important do you think that is? Uh, it, it, sure, uh, it is a, It is very important. It is a team sport, uh, and not only uh, between uh, the uh, dif- people with different expertise uh, within uh, a team that need to build a project, but also... Uh, that team needs to include uh, the people uh, that fund that particular project, either from a public sector perspective or a private sector's perspective. Uh, the team needs to be also, as we were, t- we were talking about cultural change, it needs to be diverse enough to bring in uh, all sorts of different uh, uh, ideas, ideas uh, that come from, uh, you know, people uh, that are middle-aged like myself with a, a, an established way of thinking and, and a sort of, and, and a lot of experience behind which have, uh, they know how to manage certain processes, but also ideas from the younger generation that uh, which the world will belong in the future. They will become the next manager in the future. It needs to be uh, for uh, uh, every, for needs to have, to have gender equality. So diversity needs to be included and team needs to be, uh, and yes, we need to have that cross-sector collaboration. And this is, is exactly what we do here at KTN, to be honest, because we uh, help to build those communities, those powerful communities that not only try to uh, um, grow the economy, but also deliver positive change. So Luca, zooming a little bit on on sort of geospatial data and how that's used, can you give us some examples of how geospatial data is important for tackling climate change? I like to describe geospatial data as the link identifier connecting the dots between objects, the objects that we use every day, the roads, the bridges, our car, our homes, the people, our family, our neighbour, our friends, our community. The system we so heavily rely upon, transport system, um, energy system, financial system, healthcare system, and uh, the environment, uh, the natural habitat that uh, provide us with uh, our well-being. And uh, geospatial data, this location data, is a data type that helps all the other data type to refer to a specific location, makes it very real to us having to live on those uh, areas affected by climate change, for example. 
And I give you a couple of examples to help you uh, understand uh, uh, how this is important. Uh, mm, there is a project, for example, called Project Credo. Um, Project Credo is funded by UK Research and Innovation and uh, uh, led by Connected Places Catapult. And it is a, a pilot project to build a national digital twin. Um, now, what is a digital twin? It is, a, uh, in layman term, is the digital representation of a physical ecosystem. Um, and uh, what Credo does is aims to bring together data about uh, infrastructure assets uh, of uh, energy um, providers such as Anglian Water, BT, um, UK Power Network. Um, and what he aims to do is uh, use all this data uh, on assets together with uh, environmental data like uh, altitude aspects, slope, uh, river catchments in an area tree cover and etc. Put all this data together and uh, analyze it in a simula simulation environment where uh, um, decisions, where uh, intelligence can be extracted to make, uh, to make decisions, um, other business decisions or decisions or policy decisions, for example. And uh, by using the simulation environment on this digital twin, we can extract all this intelligence on the infrastructure and system interdependency, for example. And we can identify, uh, well, we can make decisions, for example, we can inquire the system, what is the least costly um, adaptive measure that we need to build to protect those assets from flooding, for example, or what is the lowest carbon impact, so what are the measures that we need to put in place, or what is the most effective uh, interventions that we, we can have to save lives, and etc. So by doing uh, this, Project Credo is aiming, is aiming to build a, a climate change adaptation digital twin which in turns uh, over time helps also to increase resilience in the entire energy energy system and doing this in a systemic uh, uh, kind of level. Another example that I think is quite interesting is also because it's quite close to my heart. Uh, I've been in Brazil about 10 years ago uh, working with the National Space Agency of Brazil for a, for a few weeks and I've and I found this project was extremely interesting. And it's called DETER. Uh, it is now on the second iteration, DETER B, um, which stands for, uh, translated from Portuguese, Near Real-Time Deforestation Detection System. This is a very long-running project from the Brazilian Space Agency, uh, which uses imagery from Landsat and Sentinel, so uh, freely available imagery, also proprietary imagery from, uh, their, uh, um, from Brazil's own satellite system, to capture where uh, illegal deforestation happened. Uh, in almost near real time. And I remember 10 years ago, there were a lot of people doing this almost by hand, using just few simple lines of code to understand change detection. Now everything is uh, automated, so artificial intelligence is used now to do this at a much wider scale and much more efficiently. But the results is the same, understanding change detection from one image 
to the next uh, in different time period. And uh, when this happens, alert uh, law enforcement agency on the ground, which can go uh, to the area affected and make arrest or stop the illegal activity. And this is a, a very important example of an early warning system. It's one of the early, those early warning systems we, we, we need to build at a global scale um, if we aim to tackle the many sources of illegal activity around nature, nature exploitation. These are just two examples. There are many more, and I advise the, the listeners to download Meeting Net Zero with the Power of Place, our latest uh, publication, where we have uh, uh, many case studies across different sectors to understand how location intelligence can help tackle climate change. I think there's, there's no end of um, company data, companies reporting on their environmental and social performance against all sorts of standards. I mean, there's there's more standards than you can shake a stick at. If you look at all the acronyms, there's GRS, GRI, SASB, TCFD, uh, TNFD. I mean, it's, it's like you've shaken up all the letters in a Scrabble box and just grouped them into threes and fours. And if you do that, you're, you're pretty much hit on the sustainability reporting standard. And the challenge with that is the data isn't particularly useful, right? It is not calibrated around what we need to know. It's just more and more information because there's this assumption that if we have enough information, we'll be able to make sense of it. But actually, we need to cut through the noise and just get at the right information. And I think geospatial data can play a really important role here because a lot of the time when we're looking at what companies say they do, they're being very selective about what they're talking about, right? Whereas if we can actually look at the geographical locations in which companies operate and we can start to see, well, is the forest cover there increasing or decreasing? Is the water increasing or decreasing? We can, we can start to hold people accountable with that, you know, that real time information. It sounds like one of the things that we need to work on as well is, is not just speaking with our own in our own disciplines. And I'm guilty of this as a space scientist as well. But thinking about working with others and other sectors and outside of the area where we might naturally um, sort of congregate. Um, so I guess to both of you, really, maybe we'll start with Luca. How can our communities, our space or geospatial communities work better with people in other sectors? Well, I, I, I see two, two main uh, issue there in a way. Uh, one is, uh, uh, well, geospatial communities, even the word geospatial is so technical, so dry. Uh, it is not easily understood. I hate by... it. I hate <laughs> yeah. it. I don't hate it. it. I don't hate geospatial, but I've got, such, I've got such a bee in my bonnet at the moment about jargony words because I just, I butt up against words and it's, you know, so much about innovation is about being able to communicate easily and I'm such a, I'm an advocate of the plain, plain speaking. Sorry. The, the community has not yet found a better way to describe what we do. There is an attempt to use location data but no, has not yet been uh, uh, applied uh, uh, widely. But uh, yes, th there is a problem with just the word the geospatial. One, mm -hmm. you know, does create a difficulty of communication from the geospatial community and other sector. So we need to start demystifying the, the, the word. The geospatial is not just the, uh, you know, the domain of geo geoinformatician. It's actually the, the, the technology that allow our autonomous, connected and sustainable world. Uh, but also another, another issue, I think, is uh, uh, that uh, because of the technology, just think of space data, uh, when you see an image, you can, uh, 
that the information that you can get from the image can be applied to a lot of different sectors. So what we have done, we we have built horizontal solutions that can apply to every different sectors. And that doesn't really speak well to build those better collaboration. What we need to do really is, uh, what we say, build a vertically integrated solution. So really get the geospatial data and uh, and focus on a particular sector and a particular vertical and build a solution just for that. What do you and mean, by, you don't like, what do you mean yes. by vertical? Vertical integrated solution. Yes, what? I know, ah! know you were going for it. I'm going to give you an example <laughs> there. Uh, a vertical, like, for example, in financial sector, you have insurance, you have debt, uh, you have uh, uh, commodity trading, uh, uh, asset management, and etc. There is a company which I particularly like. Uh, it's called Mantle Lab. They built. A, they they started working on uh, agri tech, so building a solution for uh, farmers in developing countries to support them to understand their uh, yield, to understand uh, the condition of their land, and help them to 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 grow better. Uh, but after a, a while they were working, they understand that the opportunity was actually. Uh, in, in the fact that these farmers could not access finance. So they kind of pivot uh, and they start building out of, geosp out of space data. Uh, so looking at, at, a, at a piece of farmland for over a number of years, a credit score. And that credit score could be applied by the insurers and, uh, and, and banks of debt provider to support these small farmers with uh, access to finance. And what that has created is a solution that is completely uh, for one sector, which is the insurance sector in this case, which has helped to open up a new opportunity globally, but at the same time has helped uh, smallholders uh, in, uh, in developing countries to access finance and to the risk of their operation, which once they were not able to do. So Geospatial here has, a, has an ability to do uh, to a you know, to do so much more than just uh, uh, help a farmer to understand their, uh, their their crop or their their field, but create a completely different, uh, a completely new sector. That's so interesting, Luca. Um, Jeff, you talk a lot about sort of system level techniques or mm. system level science, I guess. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what, what you mean by that um, and, what, and how you can what use the hell system systems science. thinking. Is. Yeah, systems thinking, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So if we, if we look back to um, even as far as the Enlightenment, okay, so when Newton was, was uh, um, coming up with all these amazing things and so on, um, we, our early successes in science were around looking at smaller and smaller things, right? Looking at cells in a body, um, splitting molecules into atoms, splitting up light into its constituent colours and so forth. And... That really became the dominant way of thinking, what we might call a reductionist view about how the world works. Right? But you, you miss something with that. You can get a long way in understanding how um, fundamental particles work, for example. But when you actually need to understand how a complex system works, like an ecosystem with multiple species interacting and weather and water and so forth, then you can't understand that system by just looking at one piece of it. And, a, and an example I would give is if you if you watch how one person moves around, you can't learn all there is to know about what that one person does and then suddenly understand how crowds move around. 
right? Because it's the interaction between the pieces that matter. So systems thinking is really about not just understanding the pieces, but the patterns, the interaction between all the pieces. And what we find with complex systems, whether it's the economy or a group of people or a, an ecosystem um, in the natural world, um, what we find is the behavior of that system overall emerges from those interactions of all those pieces. So it doesn't matter how much you chop it into individual things and understand those things. If you're not looking at the whole as well, you will never quite understand how it works and therefore how to change it. Great. And this kind of brings us back to, to sort of the beginning about collaboration, about working across disciplines, about bringing people mm. together to have conversations and, and mm. to work to work. So we're running out of time, Dallas, mm. I think. We are. That How interesting. So innovation, collaborat- collaboration, trial and error, experimentation, culture. holistic culture, holistic thinking, uh, team sports, better communication, <laughs> diversity. Jargon, diversity. We've covered everything. We've got one more question, actually, for both of you. This is quite interesting. If you could wave a magic wand and predict, let, let's sort of project ourselves sort of five years into the future, maybe 10 years into the future, what, 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 does, what would success look like for you? What, could you? what would you like to do that, that, that would sort of propel you to something successful? And what would that success look like? How magic is this wand? Pretty magic. It's, it's, it's Earth's magicest wand. Is it? Wow. Yeah, very okay. magical. Um, I think the the thing we most need to do is well, two things. We need to we need to absolutely transform our energy system to be electrified in in every way, um, and to have as much of that energy system powered by renewables as possible. That's one thing. Um, to completely get ourselves off fossil fuels. Um, the second thing we need to do is look very closely at how we use energy today. Because even with all the renewables you could possibly build, um, there's, there's a challenge, in fact. The amount of energy we would need to build all of that renewable infrastructure would actually blow through the global, car- global carbon budget. We would actually use up our remaining carbon we can have in the atmosphere if we were to create all those wind turbines and solar panels and so forth, right? So it's it's an illusion to think that we can um, just carry on living exactly as we are and just switch out oil for solar panels, right? So what we need to do in addition is we need to vastly reduce the amount of energy we use. And that's why innovation is so important. And it can be done. I think that's, re- that's really interesting. But we just don't think about that. We just think, oh, it's a really simple switch. We just switch to renewables. And actually, there is a cost to that. Uh, Luca, where, you've got the magic wand. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, well, I would probably, I would probably two words. I would probably would like to see a digital twin of planet Earth emerging. Uh, we didn't discuss much about digital twins, which are we'll talk uh, about that in another episode. Don't worry. Most likely, but is uh, yeah, building a digital representation of the physical uh, world, and. Uh, in this case, uh, uh, bringing together data to manage to, be, to build a physical rep- digital representation of the entire planet Earth so that we can monitor and create simulations and predict and uh, being able uh, to make better decisions on uh, the system we want to affect. Okay, that's it. Thank you very, very much to Jeff and to Luca for joining us. Hope you've been enjoying the series, by the way. Hope it's been uh, inspiring you, giving you lots of food for thought. I hope you enjoyed that episode. 
Don't forget, you can get in touch with Luca Badello or Andy Bennett at KTN if you'd like to collaborate or chat more about anything that we've been talking about today. And of course, there's a publication that goes alongside this podcast series. It's called Net Zero and the Power of Place. And you can find a link to it in the podcast description. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Innovate UK KTN. Connecting for positive change.